So, I'm going over the Stalag Luft Drei murders, um, which were war crimes perpetrated by members of the Gestapo following the great escape of Allied prisoners of war from the German Air Force prison camp known as Stalag Luft Drei. And this occurred on March 25th, 1944. This was during World War II. Mm-hmm. Of the 76 successful escapees, there were 73 that were recaptured. Um, most were found within several days of the breakout, uh, 50 of whom were executed on the personal orders of Adolf Hitler. So, here's the thing. Um, in a time of war, you're not supposed to execute your war, cr- your, your war prisoners. Mm-hmm. That's a war crime. Um, but, you know, this is World War II, and they didn't really give a fuck what they were doing out they, there. They, yeah, they weren't really playing by the normal war rules. So, these executions that Adolf Hitler um, ordered were all conducted within an extremely short period of time following these people's recapture. So... The, this is just like an overview as well. So the outrage at these killings were expressed immediately both in the prison camp among comrades of the escaped prisoners and in the UK where Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden rose in the House of Commons to announce in June 1944 that those guilty of what the British government suspected was a war crime would be brought to exemplary justice. Um, after Nazi Germany's capitulation in May 1945, the police branch of the Royal Air Force, with whom the 50 airmen had been serving, launched a special investigation into the killing. So this was an investigation that happened after, um, the war. Um... They branded the shootings a war crime despite official German reports that the airmen had been shot while attempting to, to escape from captivity following recapture. Um, an extensive investigation headed by Wing Commander Wilfred Bowes of the RAF and Squadron Leader Frank McKenna of the Special Investigation Branch into the events following the recapture of the 73 airmen was launched. Um, and that was pretty unique uh, for being the only major war crime to be investigated by a single branch of any nation's military. So let's kind of talk about the escape. Escape. Um, this is kind of a long story, by the way. I thought this was a pretty interesting story because um, no one ever told me about this. The longer stories are usually the ones that are better anyways. Did anyone ever tell you about the this entire escape in history? Mm-mm. I've, I've never heard of this before. It's crazy. It is the biggest war prisoner escape in history. From that's, what I read. That's wild. The only prison escape... Escape. 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 Oh, my God. The only one that I know about is the one from Alcatraz. Where they went missing and they never found them again. I'm pretty sure those guys died. 
Pretty sure. I don't, I just, I find the theories hard to believe that they just, like, they live <laughs> the rest of their lives. They're, I'm pretty sure they, like, fucking hit a rock and died. <laughs> or the storm, or their makeshift little tarp thing flipped upside down and they were done for. Yeah. They had to. Yeah. Maybe that'll be a story one day. Maybe. But right now, continue. So, let's talk about the escape. So, on March 29th, 1944, Australian squadron leader James Catternock and three fellow Allied airmen found themselves languishing in a Nazi prison just a few miles short of the Danish border. Uh, two years after being shot down over Norway, Catternock had been part of the most daring escape of the war, which is this one. <laughs> Um, about 76 Allied airmen had tunneled out before attempting to disperse across Europe and escape back to Britain. So they, like, dug tunnels out from under the camp. What's that one movie where the guy does that, where he he digs a tunnel using, like, a makeshift pick from behind a a poster? Oh, I know what it's called. That's in, like, every prison escape movie from the 50s. No, it was a very specific one. And I, I, Shawshank Redemption, that was the one I was thinking of. Oh, yeah, the classic. Yeah. Yeah, and then everyone else started copying them. <laughs> yeah. So, Cadenock and Arnold Christensen of the Royal New Zealand Air Force had managed to make their way to the railway station at Sagan, um, the town nearest the camp, and they were trying to catch, or they were, they caught a, an express to Berlin, and they spent the night in the capital avoiding detection, and they purchased train tickets to Flensburg, but they were spotted and arrested before they could get on the train. And then Christensen and fellow escapees Halada Espelid and Niels Fuglesang, Norwegians of the Royal Air Force, um, assumed the Germans would return them to a prison camp, which was the normal protocol, but that afternoon, oh fuck, what happened? That afternoon, Major Johannes Post of the Gestapo and his comrade Oscar Schmidt arrived to question them. And the, the, the interrogation was pretty futile. The prisoners were handcuffed. And they were marched to their cars. Um, the Post took, uh, so Post took custody of Cadenock in his car and they set off with a driver. And once they got out into the countryside, um, they were in a bunch of Mercedes, obviously. Um, they just, like, stopped in the countryside. And Kedanok was told to get out and cross the road where a gate was opening up into a meadow. And as he was running out there, Post pulled out a Luger 765mm pistol, and he shot Katanik between the shoulder blades and killed him instantly. Ooh. Um, and then Schmidt and his two partners, who were with Katanok, um, who, like, were captured kind of with him. Um, oh, wait, no. So Schmidt and his two partners, they were a part of the Gestapo. They marched the prisoners across the road, and one of them... One of the prisoners, one of the airmen, saw a dark object laying in the grass and realized that it was Katadok. 
and so they all three tried to escape before they were shot down, but um, they were shot in two of them died immediately while the third hit the ground and struggled. Um, then Post kind of walked up to him and put a final bullet in his head. Concrete pilings, um, so the way that the escape initially happened was that there were concrete pilings that served as foundations for each washroom and kitchen, and they were dug into the earth. So prisoners would have to dig through these before they even hit the soil whenever they were um, trying to escape. Squadron leader Roger Bushel, who was 32 years old when he arrived to the prison camp in 1942, uh, he had already been a prisoner for two years, and he had a reputation as being like an escape artist in this place. Um, so the plan called for the simultaneous digging of three tunnels named Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, they they named them that to avoid the microphones. Um, that would be listening into everything that they were saying while they were in the camp. Uh, they were, so there were vertical shafts that were to be dug 30 feet down before they started um, digging horizontally out toward um, the outside of the camp, of the prison camp. Um, however, um, in September of 1943, Tom was discovered, um, but by March of 1944, uh, it was thought that Harry, at 336 feet long, had reached the cover of the trees, and the escape was set for Friday, March 24th, on the night of a new moon, um, which, for anyone that's not really familiar with what a new moon is, because I honestly don't give a fuck enough about moon phases to remember, it's whenever the moon is at its darkest is the darkest phase, so the, uh... So there's no light anywhere. Yeah. Unless you have, like, a lamp with you. But, like, natural lightness, yeah, it's it's completely non-existent. It's pitch black. Yeah, just about. Um, so by four in the morning, it was decided that the 87th man in the tunnel would be the last to go. Uh, above the ground, there was a sentry patrolling the perimeter, um who approached the edge of the woods to relieve himself, but then he noticed steam rising from the ground. Um, uh, to, just to note that the, that the tunnel Harry actually didn't reach the cover of the trees. It reached just outside the cover of the trees. Mm. Um. So they weren't completely in the clear like they thought they were? No, they had to, like, make a run for the trees. Whenever they got out of the hole. He saw the steam rising from the ground, so armed guards swarmed the compound, and a roll call was taken. The numbers were, tattle- were tallied, and there was a startling 76 men who had escaped. 76 men? Yes. How many people were in the prison? Like, in total. Did oh, you know? I don't know. There's a shit ton. I mean, this is okay. I was World supposed to be like, well, wouldn't you notice if 76 people were missing? But I guess not with World War II prisons. I mean, I don't really think they're, like, at night, I don't think they're counting people like that continuously anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
Yeah, 76 men had escaped. Uh, whenever Hitler found out, he was, like, he was pissed. He was big mad. Yeah. Like, he summoned the SS chief, Heinrich Himmler, and the Reich Marshal, uh, Göring, and he ordered that all 76 uh, fugitives be executed upon recapture, like, immediately. Um... Damn, they dragged out the SS. Yeah, I mean, the SS was a very big part of World War II, too. Yeah. No, they had... Okay, so here's the the next craziest thing. So the Criminal Investigations Department of the Reich Police issued a gross fondung, a national hue and cry, ordering the military, the Gestapo, the SS, the Home Guard, and Hitler Youth to put every effort into hunting down the escapees. That's how mad Hitler was. He, he went all out. <laughs> he, look, he um, basically redirected nearly 100,000 men um, from defending the Reich to hunting down these down. men. That's, man, he, he was big mad. Yeah. Like, this man, I mean, it's Hitler. Who, like, what else do you expect? I mean, he doesn't handle being... He doesn't handle rejection very well, as we found out via history. So having 76 of your prisoners make it out, yeah, that, that probably peeved him just a little bit. I mean, he is, like, the worst person in history. Yeah. <laughs> so nothing really surprised me except for the fact that he, like, liked animals and felt bad for lobsters boiling. <laughs> but not for, you know, people. So, five days after the breakout, on Wednesday, March 29th, 35 escapees had, um, what is it, 35 escapees had been cramped into cells of a jail at Gurlitz, which was not far south of Sigon. So, they found 35 of them. Um, and those who remained on the run were hoping to make destinations in Czechoslovakia, Spain, Denmark, or Sweden. Um, however, most they were all seized at checkpoints, betrayed by informants, or just thwarted by freezing temperatures. Um, ah, the frost thwarted them. All but three fugitives were back in captivity before long. On April fifteenth, um, a list of a, a list identifying the victims appeared on the camp's notice board. And the list contained. Um, not 41 names, but 47. And then two days later, a representative of the Swiss protecting power visited Stadlokloff III on a routine inspection was given a copy of the list. So I'm sure we all heard about Sweden being like the neutral power during World War II. So what they would do is that they would go and they would inspect these prisons for each country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would report back to make sure that no war crimes were being committed. Um, among the dead were 25 Britons, 6 Canadians, 3 Australians, 2 New Zealanders, 3 South Africans, 4 Poles, uh, 2 Norwegians, 1 Frenchman, and 1 Greek. So, let's move on to like the actual kind of like murders um Reich Marshal Hermann Göring 
head of the Luftwaffe um, and Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler, Chief of State Security and uh, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, uh, who is head of the German High Command, um, had ultimate control over prisoners of war, and they all argued about the responsibility of the escape. General orders were that recaptured officers would be turned over to the criminal police, and 50 would be handed to the Gestapo to kill. So, originally Hitler wanted all 76 men to be murdered, but they, um, a lot of the SS marshals and stuff thought that that was too... So a lot of uh, the SS Reichs and everything, they thought that was actually too pretty extreme of Hitler to want to kill all 76 of these people. I mean, it was. So they tried to count him down. They tried to, <laughs> they tried to humble, humble him a little bit, be like, listen, maybe that's not the best idea. <laughs> well, not entirely. Not entirely? Okay. They just tried to get him to not kill all of them. Oh, right. So they settled on 50 to be killed. Oh, 50 of the 76 are going to be yes. killed. Okay. So that's why 50 of the recaptured officers would be handed over to the Gestapo, which is what the Gestapo's job was, basically. British military intelligence was made aware of the events during conditions of wartime by letters home and a result of communications by the protecting power of Switzerland which I said before was the neutral party reporting on conditions in prisoner camps for both countries. The British governor, government learned initially of 47 deaths after a routine visit to the camp by the Swiss authorities, um, which happened in May. And Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden announced this news to the House of Commons on the 19th of May, 1944. Shortly after that announcement, the senior British officer of the camp, Group Captain Herbert Massey, uh, was um, repatriated to England due to ill health. And you can actually like see a list of all of the victims of the escape and murder on Wikipedia if you just kind of like look up Stalagluf three murders. Um, it'll like pop up with a list of everyone. And, like, where they're from, who they were, yeah. So, after the war ended, there was um, an investigation. Um, a detachment of the Special Investigation Branch of, of the Royal Air Force Police, headed by Wing Commander Wilfred Bowes, was given the assignment of tracking down the killers of the 50 officers. Um... The investigation started 17 months after the alleged crimes had been committed, so it was technically a cold case. A small detachment of investigators, um, which were about five officers and 14 non-commissioned officers, um, were active for about three years, and they actually identified 72 men as guilty of either murder or conspiracy to murder, of whom 69 were accounted for. Any nice... 69. <laughs> I don't think this is the situation to be making that joke. <laughs> Not, but I'm trying to lighten because the shit's that's deep. That's heavy. I mean, yeah, it's World War Two. It's a pretty heavy hitter. Yeah. Um, but I thought it's, it was a, a pretty important story because, like, I was I found it 
I was like, I've never even heard of this. And it was one of the largest prison escapes in history. Yeah. I'm surprised we never heard about this, especially with the way that American history romanticizes World War II. But it's probably because Americans had nothing to do with it. Well, the only, because the thing is, like, Americans romanticized World War II because the only part of it was us having, like, a dick contest with Japan. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Like. But, yeah, that being, uh, the biggest prison break, you would think that would be something that you're, that you're told about is just how massive of a prison break this was. 76 men made it out. Yeah. That's insane. And then 50 of them ended up dying. Yes. Um, and I think, like, more of them ended up, like, freezing to death or stuff like that, which mm-hmm. was... So I don't really know exactly how many actually made it out alive. But, okay, so of the 72 men that were found guilty, mm-hmm. um, 22 were eventually tried and executed. Some for other than the Chtalikluft three murders. 17 were tried and imprisoned. 11 had committed suicide. 7 were untraced. Although 4 of these 7 were presumed dead. I'm pretty sure Hitler is in there. Mm -hmm. In that little four section. Yeah, he's a little involved Um, in that. 6 had been killed during the war. 5 were arrested but not charged. One was arrested but not charged so he could be used as a material witness. Three were charged but either acquitted or had the sentence um, quashed on review. And one remained in refuge in East Germany whenever they split up Berlin. Mm. Which I guess is kind of lose-lose for that guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he just he didn't get executed. Yeah, he, he, he avoided execution and, well, if he was refuge then he didn't go back to prison, right? No, so he got freedom at what cost? (laughs) This is like, I mean, yeah, the the officers that were able to escape persecution, prosecution, not persecution, prosecution after the war from Germany, like not the Nazi Germany people, um, it blows my mind. And then, like, now we have, like, all these fucking people speaking German in South America. Doesn't really make you think, but makes you wonder. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, a, a like, a little speck of food for thought. Just, like, mm, interesting. Yeah. So, so during the war... The Nazis, the SS, and the Gestapo, like, all of these people did try to cover up the murders. Um, but the thing about Germans, we all know, is that they love their bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. They're very meticulous. I, don't, I think, I guess it's a cultural thing. I've, like, Germany is just so such an organized country, I feel. They really are. And I appreciate that about Germany and the German government. Honestly, I don't know enough about the German government. I mean, um, it's uh, it's pretty cut and dry. They're still just as meticulous, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um. But that helped investigators out a lot. Because there were a ton of crematoria documents. Um, 
as well as willing eyewitness accounts and many confessions among the Gestapo members themselves, um, who, of course, cited that they were only following orders. So, I mean, I feel like that happened quite a bit during World War II whenever they were investigating, like, um, the Nazi Germans, the Nazis took, they had so much, they took so much care keeping all of whatever they needed, like, whatever they did, um, like, on the books. Like, they kept track yeah, of all of that. They did. Which, I mean... Except for, like, you know, the I'm, Jewish people they all killed. Yeah. I'm sure, like, a part of that was the... Uh, maybe, like, a fraction of it. I don't know. I'm not a Nazi. I, I wasn't alive during that time. But a part of it probably was there was that idea, like, this is going to be the new world. So they started the bookkeeping then to... For, like, I guess future preservation. But, like... I don't know why they, I I wouldn't imagine it was for future preservation, but I feel like, but I, because didn't when when maybe, when she, whenever, really was like really all about himself. He really was. That's why I'm like mm, maybe like that's why I say like a fraction of it was maybe for future preservation, and I say that also just because I'm pretty sure, and I'm I'm not going to be factual on this, but I'm like pretty sure that I heard or read somewhere or saw in some documentary. That, like, when everything started going to shit was when they started trying to destroy as much as they could to, like, get rid of those records. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, "Mm, I wonder if it was just they they were like, this is going to be the new world. So they hung on to as much as they could. And then that was something. But, like, even then, like you said, like, the Germans are just, they're very organized people in general. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of cultures that are like that. Okay, so one of the longest parts is really just the trials, which I kind of lied when I said this long. It's, like, three and a half pages, but... Um, I feel like going, like, going through, like, researching this thing, first off, there was actually not that much information I could find, Mm -hmm. which was so weird, but I found a lot of really interesting information on the trials, which I think we actually went to, yeah, we did, we We went to the place where the trials for the Chtalag Luftdrei murders took place yeah we went there we saw the courtroom because it was under construction because they were uh restoring different pieces of it yeah in nuremberg yeah Um, yeah we saw that so so in the trials um ss gruppenfuhrer arthur nieb um was believed to have selected the airmen to be shot he was later executed by Nazis for his involvement in the July 20th plot to kill Hitler, which I feel like it needs to be another part of, like, another episode, because <laughs> I didn't know that the fellow Nazis were plotting to kill Hitler. Did you know that? I didn't. It, it's never been confirmed, but I'd always wondered if there, like, there had to be some corruption from within. Corruption, I mean, there corrupt has to be, the but, like... But, like, there had to be ones that, like, joined up with the intention of maybe doing something about it from the inside out. Because there's, like, that in basically every group and organization. Yeah. So, I had always wondered, but that confirmed it. So, there was a group in there that was trying to take it out from the inside out. Yes. Um, American Colonel Telford Taylor, colonel. 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 I hate that fucking word. Colonel. Why is it spelled like that? I think it's French or Why something. Why is it said like that? Actually, 
I don't mind the way it's spelled. I mind the fact that it's pronounced Colonel. I honestly, I couldn't tell you. I want to say that the word is French. I'm probably wrong. But, so Telfer Taylor was the U.S. prosecutor in the high command case at the Nuremberg trials. The indictment in this case was, uh, it called for the general staff of the army and the high command of the German armed forces to be considered criminal organizations. The witnesses were several of the surviving German field marshals and their staff officers. Uh, Luftwaffe Colonel Bernd von, um, I'm gonna fuck this up, Brauchich. It's okay. My cryptid, I'm gonna um, mess up on a lot of the words. I literally had to put the pronunciations next to some of them because it's Native American in origins. Um, Baron von Brauchich uh, served on the staff of the Reich Marshal Hermann. No, Baron was interrogated by Captain Horace Hahn about the murders. So the first trial specifically dealing with the Chalaglifti murders began on the 1st of July, 1947, against 18 defendants. 18 defendants? I mean, they were trying, like, fucking everyone. Like, they had, they were just putting everyone on one trial, basically. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, we saw that when we were there. They had that whole, like, museum thing upstairs, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And they had, like, mentioned, like, basically everything that involved the Nazis was handled there. And, like, yeah. one of the reasons why was because it was one of the only courthouses still standing after all of the war. Yeah. Um. So the trial was held before number one war crimes court at the Curio House in Hamburg. And the accused, every single one of them, pled not guilty. Yeah, of course they did. Um... The verdicts and sentences were handed down after a full 50 days, which occurred on September 3rd of that year. Max Velen was found guilty of conspiracy and sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, the others were found not guilty of the first two charges, but they were all found guilty of the individual charges of murder. Breithaupt received life imprisonment, Dankman and Strove 10 years imprisonment each. Um, let me rephrase that. I didn't say that right. So Breithaupt received life imprisonment, and Dankman and Struve, um received 10 years of imprisonment each. Um, Boschert, um eventually received a life imprisonment. Um, and the other 13 condemned prisoners were hanged at Hamlin Prison in February of 1948 by British executioner Albert Pierpoint. Um, there's actually a few things in the media that go that are based around the Schellegluft murders, um, which actually I've heard of a couple of these movies, but I've never really seen them. So, the murders were shown, they were shown as a single massacre instead of, like, individual small groups, but there was a film called The Great Escape in 1963 that was based around these, the escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the search for the culprits responsible for the murder, like, of the investigation by the Allied forces, was depicted in the sequel called The Great Escape 2, The Untold Story. 
And then BBC Radio 4 actually had a Saturday drama series, which was broadcast um, on the 13th of April in 2013 as a dramatization of the investigation. And that was actually written by Robin Brooks and Robert Radcliffe. And that is the Sherlock Luft Three Murders. Sherlock Luft Three Murders. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a lot. I mean World War Two, dude. I mean there's so much material that comes out of World War Two in terms of, of murder and crimes and criminals. Yeah, I don't really like thinking about World War Two. That's <laughs> too soon. It's too soon to um, think about. It's just awful to think about. It is. I mean it was the it was the genocide of an entire group of people. Yeah, so I... Plus some, because it was Jews, it was gays, and Irish, Irish travelers. It's it's not a fun discussion, and I, to date, do not understand why it gets romanticized the way that it does. I don't really know many people that romanticize it. I just know people who are, like, really into the, like, history of it. I I do, unfortunately. I don't talk to any of them anymore. <laughs> but... I've well, I guess then I would say I've known people who did, and I mean you see documentaries about it all the time on the History Channel, and it's probably not anymore. Honestly, History mm-hmm. Channel is more about well, guys that go find things in junkyards, <laughs> American pickers. <laughs> but yeah, that that's wild. I'm again, I'm I'm like it's just baffling to me that you never that like we've never learned about that in school. I mean, there are, like, there's a lot of stuff from World War II that, I mean, they're not really going to tell a lot of people. Not because, like, it's not important, but I feel like because it's a fucking lot to cover. And in the U.S., we're really only going to learn about, like, yeah, the Holocaust, but then we're going to mostly learn about um, what the U.S. did with Japan mm-hmm. or to Japan. What what was our portion? What was our part in World War II? Yeah. That's what, yeah. That's what we're going to be taught. That's what we are taught. But. But yeah. But yeah. It's my murder. Well, shout out to that murder. I'm glad for the most part some justice was served. Are you ready for my cryptid? Mm -hmm. So, I know we were originally, we were going on the the run of doing European-based. But I kind of hit like a wall when I was trying to find interesting European cryptids because there's there's a ton of cryptids in Europea, in Europea. It's just called Europe. (laughs) Europe. There there's a lot in Europe, but none of them have they they didn't have solid origins, and there weren't many sightings. Most of them were just like legends, like we I talked about on the last one. There were so many corn ones. And fire demon based ones. Mm-hmm. But almost none of them had backing to them. So I went with something, uh, especially in light of the death of Hadri- Had- Hagrid. In, the li- in light of the death of Hagrid, I went with something that I felt like needs a little more of an introduction because of its significance in the Harry Potter fandom. So my cryptid is the Pugwudgie. Very cute name, isn't it? What what is a pugwudgie? I I didn't even hear about that. And is it go? Does it go by a different name in Harry Potter? No, it goes by pugwudgie in in Harry in Harry Potter because that's the angelicized name of it. So the 
name as it's known by because it's a Native American folklore creature. The name, it, depending on the tribe, obviously, it's gonna it goes by the Bugwajiwini, uh, the Bug Bugwajinia, or the Bugwajimun. I I had to like spell those out because I was so scared of mispronouncing them. Are those so, only like mentioned in the books? They they're mentioned throughout several different Native American folklore legends. No, I mean like in the Harry Potter books. Oh no, in the Harry Potter books, it's just known as the Pugwudgie. And in within but are Harry they Potter, mentioned only in the books, or are they mentioned in the movies too? Do you know? They're mentioned once in the Fantastic Beast. Mm. franchise because the Pugwudgies are based in America and they're actually the Pugwudgie is one of the houses for the American Harry Not Potter for the American Hogwarts known as Fantastic Beast. It was okay. It was alright. The the I first mean, movie was like cool. A, I'm not like a crazy Harry Potter fan, but like I was watching it and I was like she's trying way too hard to like apologize to the gays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like that just that's what it seemed like to me. It was just like a, a an effort to get the gays on her side. Again, yeah. After after the bullshit that is JK Rowling. Um but so the Pugwaji within the Harry Potter universe for Ivermorny, which is the American magical school that Pugwaji is a it's one of the, the houses and that's because there's in the origins of how Ivermorny came to be on Pottermore.com, which is where J.K. Rowling puts all of the canon for the Harry Potter Hogwarts universe sort of thing. Um, Pugwudgies. There's uh, the girl who created Ivermorny. Like, she had a friend that was a Pugwudgie who was her only friend when she escaped to America. It's a whole deal that I'm not going to go into right now. Um, Because the Pugwudgies, as they are from Native American folklore, are honestly pretty funny. They're great. So They sound fun. They, they they honestly they are and their origin story is kind of hilarious. So, the Pugwudgie, uh, also known as the Bugwajivinini, Bugwajininia, or the Bugwajimun, depending on the tribe, is thought to be a magical creature of forests and swamps. The origin of the Pugwudgie legend comes from Native American folklore. The name Pugwudgie itself literally means "person of the wilderness." It's most strongly affiliated with the Chippewa, Wampanoag, I'm going to butcher this, Algonquin, Abenaki, and Mohican tribes. Physically, it is similar um, to a gray-skinned troll or other small goblin-type being in size and stature and has hair like a porcupine. Like the trolls from Frozen? Kind of. Oh, but that Native American tribe, it's called the, um, can you say it again? Uh... Algang, Algonquin. 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 Okay, thank you. So. I read, I, I learned about them in my college history class. That's why I know <laughs> I, I'm not like an expert on that. <laughs> I'm glad because I literally had to type into Google because I was like, I have to say this right. Um, um, I think it might, I think it matters that you try. Yeah, I'm I think trying. there's a lot of things that people can't, I mean, people don't, didn't even say my fucking name right in Europe. Yeah, they couldn't say my name in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the Algonquian and the Wampanoag tribes have many legends, so it's most prominent in those two tribes. Um, they have many legends about this creature who is thought to be capable of both good and evil. 
So to some, it's a good-natured and helpful being who inhabits the forests of the Great Lakes and New England regions. To others, it is a mischievous troublemaker who is capable of terrible, even deadly, deeds, including kidnapping and sabotage. Pagwajis use their wits as well as magical weapons such as bows and arrows against those who anger them. So the Pugwudgies, like, their hair, kind of, for the most part. It looks like a porcupine in, like, all of the artistic renditionings. It's, like, super spiky and, like, goes all the way down their back. It's honestly kind of funny. I'm sorry, that definitely does sound like a frozen troll. It does, doesn't it? So. So. <laughs> so the Pugwudgies can be good or evil, right? Uh, they're mostly based in New England, like the New England area, um, which is probably why they're prominent in Harry Potter, <laughs> because Ilvermorny is behind the Greyback Mountains, which is in New England. So for the most part, they they can be good natured and helpful who inhabit the forests and the Great Lakes and New England regions. To others, it's a mischievous mischievous troublemaker who is capable of terrible, even deadly deeds, including kidnapping and sabotage. Pugwudgies use their wits as well as magical weapons such as bows and arrows against those who anger or disrespect them. So the earliest legend of the Pugwudgie seems to be connected to the, to the Wampanoag people. The Wampanoag believe in a creation giant known as the Maushop. He was responsible for creating much of the lands that the tribe called home, and Maushop and his wife, Granny Squanit, were much loved and revered by the tribe, being lavishly affectionate and respected. So, the smaller and lesser powerful Puckwudgies were jealous of Maushop, as all of their efforts to be helpful to, to the Wampanoag usually backfired. Instead of being loved, they were considered a nuisance. Rather than help the tribe, they decided to annoy them instead. Things soon escalated, and the tribe turned to their creation gods for help. Malshop was invoked to help rid the natives of their Pugwudgie problems, so he scooped up all the little Pugwudgies, shook them senseless, and tossed them all around the New England area. So he just yeeted them throughout all of New England. He just, wait, to punish the Pugwudgies? Yeah, to get rid of the pugwuggies, he like picked them up. I feel up, like he just gave them shake all of New England with pugwuggies. <laughs> he did, and now they have brain damage. Yeah, he he literally gave them shaken baby syndrome and sent them on their way. And I say that because a lot of the pugwuggies were killed in the process of this, <laughs> according to the creation myth. <laughs> um, those that got away scattered across the region, laying Strongest. low. Yes. What's that? What's that sociology thing? The Survival of the fittest. Yeah. Man, I hate that logic, but it's there. <laughs> there. So those that got away scattered across the region, laying low until Maushop faded into native mythology. So he like stuck around and was like, all right, I think your problem's good. And then he just dipped. So eventually, the surviving Pugwudgies returned and exacted revenge on the tribe by sending fire, setting fire to their homes, kidnapping their children, and luring many to their deaths deep in the woods. They're sounding kind of evil to me. Yeah. I thought you said they weren't evil. They, it varies from tale to tale. Like, they can oh. be. They have the capability of being either. So, so they, they were super nice. Yeah. Wow. 
they have a moral compass. So like they tried to be super nice and they tried to be really helpful, but it kept backfiring. So the natives were like, nah, fuck you. And because they were like that, they were like, all right, fine. So then they became evil. Uh, and then they were super pissed about getting tossed around. So they came back to exact revenge. So because they did that, they came back and started setting fires and taking children and killing people. Malshop, again, was called upon for help. This time, he sent his five sons to take care of the problem. It wasn't long before the Pugwudgies actually killed the sons. And some variations even suggest that they killed Malshop himself. And this legend is to coincide with the giants disappearing from the Wampanoag folklore. I... Man, I love Native American folklore. Right? <laughs> they just, like, they do it the best. They really do. They go so hard. So, lately, stories of the Pugwudgie have come into light on shows such as Paranormal State and Monsters and Mysteries in America. And in one instance, the Pugwudgie was a bothersome and frightening creature who needed to be appeased with respect and small gifts. So you have to give them offerings. In the others, the Pugwudgie was a formidable and terrifying monster who attacked an entire family. His, e his evil laughter still haunts the nightmares of those who encountered him. So, interestingly, uh, some of the places that the Pugwudgies have been known to frequent are connected to other supernatural beings. Recent, recent reports put the Pugwudgie in Massachusetts at the Freetown Fall River State Forest on the Watupa Reservation. <clears throat> an area belonging to the Wampanoag Nation. Fall River is home of the infamous accused axe murderess Lizzie Borden, who may or may not be haunting her old residence. She should have blamed the, the, the Pugwuggies. Pugwuggies? Pugwuggies. <laughs> pug Pugwuggies. Pugwuggies. She should have blamed the Pugwuggies. The Pugwuggies. They were the ones who killed my father well, and my I stepmother. Mean, I guess she didn't really have to. She, she got away with it anyway. Yeah, she got away with I it in her. the end. Um, so Mounds State Park in Anderson, Indiana is another active Pugwuggie area. Mounds State Park is the site of ancient mounds built by early native tribes who inhabited the area. Mythical properties are attributed to these mounds. A very famous haunted prison, Moundsville State Penitentiary, is not far from the park. And another hot spot for these beings is Round Rock, Texas. That is such like a white area right. for them to be. What uh, was it originally? I mean, this whole place was, but was was Round Rock specifically originally somewhere a home for Native American tribes? Not, not to what I could find. I think it's it's connected because the way that people like the sightings of these little gnome like troll creatures have been while they're traveling Harry Man Road, which is the road that the Sasquatch is supposedly seen Harry on. Harry Man Road. You know, and um. In the south, the Sasquatch is supposed to be smaller, so he's actually called a skunk ape. A skunk ape. <laughs> yeah, like there's not a, there's technically not a Sasquatch in the south. It's a skunk ape, which is his um, smaller, uglier, smellier cousin. <laughs> but that's why they connected to Round Rock is because supposedly they've seen them, and it's that's the the, the correlation being that it's an area that already has some kind of cryptid activity happening so they're gonna well, pop up there too i used to work in round rock and i never saw a pug wedgie what would you do if you did i don't know just like drop kick it or like give it a snack 
I think it would probably get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, with our drivers. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's just such an urbanized area. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine you find a pug wedgie just, like, digging in your trash. I would call animal control. <laughs> they do look like porcupines, in my opinion. So, some of the sightings. Author and amateur archaeologist Paul Startsman claimed to have encountered the Puckwudgies numerous times, writing on his experiences and the experiences of others in his book The Pugwudgies of Indiana. Startsman's first encounter with the Pugwudgies was in 1927 when he was only 10 years old. Startsman says that when he was hiking alone on a trail in the park, why were you hiking alone? He suddenly saw a little man half his size. The little man had dull blonde hair that covered his head like a helmet, which left his ears to protrude. Paul Startsman interviewed many people who had encountered the Pugwudgies in their lives. He chose to keep their identities anonymous because of skeptics. Uh, Eloise H. was one such person who was interviewed while living at a nursing home in, Ander in, in Anderson, Indiana. She remembers playing alone in the park and was approached by a group of little people who seemed curious about her and what she was doing. Eloise said that, she, that they had a high-pitched voice and spoke a language that she could not understand. She experienced this again when she was older, hiding alone nearby the woods. So, yeah, those are a couple of the sightings. Um... I probably would have had more if I'd gone into the book, but I didn't feel like purchasing the book. So, but there, there's, apparently there's still sightings happening even today. There's actually some media representation of them. So, the Pugwudgies are mentioned in Henry Wads Wadworth's Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha. After reading schoolcraft stories of Ojibwa folklore, or Oji... Ojibwe, Ojibwe, I honestly, I'm butchering that and I'm so sorry. Folklore, he featured them in the chapter, The Death of Quasind, which begins with, would you like to hear the poem? Sure. Okay. Far and wide among the nations spread the names of fame uh, and fame of Quasind. No man dared to strive with Quasind. No man could compete with Quasind. But the mischievous Pukwudgies, they, the envious little people, they, the fairies and the pygmies, plotted and conspired against him. So it paints them in the mischievous light. And then, of course, as we reiterate at the beginning of this, uh, Harry Potter. So Pugwudgies have been identified by J.K. Rowling as a magical creature in the Harry Potter universe. In description on Pottermore, Rowling describes the creatures as... The Pugwudgies is also native to America, a short, gray-faced, large-eared creature distantly related to the European goblin. Fiercely independent, tricky, and not over-fond of humankind, whether magical or mundane. It possesses its own powerful magic. Pugwudgies hunt with a deadly poisonous arrow and enjoy playing tricks on humans. So, yeah, and they're the symbol of Ilvermorny, so... Their, their position in the Ivermorny School of Witchcraft and Wizardry for America is said to represent the heart of a, whisper, of a wizard and favors healers. So the Pugwudgie is often considered to be the Hufflepuff of Ilvermorny. But sucks yeah. for them. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the Pugwudgie. They're tricky little goblins of America. Rest in peace, Hagrid. 
There's no Hogwarts without you. I guess that's it. That's it. So we went over war crimes yep. and tricky trolls. Yeah, there are like well over 50 people from the Stalagluft, so if you want to go look up all those pictures, <laughs> it's pretty sad. Go look into it and definitely look up a picture of what a Pugwudgie looks like because it's honestly funny. So, well, this has been Criminal slash Cryptid. Bye. Bye.